When you buy something online, do you go for the one that has no reviews or like six? Or do you go for the one that has thousands of reviews? Today's guest has the luxury of the latter. They have tens of thousands of reviews. In fact, they have the most reviews by far than any of their competitors, probably more than all their competitors combined. But as we talk about, it's not always that easy. Sometimes the people who you think will be your biggest supporters and first customers, they tend to be your biggest skeptics and critics in a way that doesn't always feel so good. Aside from my wife, who's incredibly supportive, and I would say my mom and dad, like everyone around me, when you say you're starting a business or or working on an idea, I think like... Everyone that you expect to be supportive, I mean, you know, they are, but they're also the ones that are the most skeptical. If you don't recognize the voice as the host of the e-commerce marketing school podcast, that's Ben Jabawi. I'm Ben Jabawi. I'm the founder and CEO of Privy.com. We are the leading e-commerce marketing solution for small e-commerce stores globally. We talk about what it means to be a founder, what it looks like to have 10,000 hours of experience, and the moment that I've been asked about more than anything else, I finally explained the whole burrito thing. Hope you enjoyed this episode of Rolled Up. So one of the themes of the podcast is it really feels like we're making e-commerce come mainstream. So there are so many industry podcasts, but I always jokingly say, share this episode with your mother-in-law. So if you were to explain to uh, someone's mother-in-law, what does Privy do? And it's funny because I'm going to break my rule and just say a double-barreled question here, but I've been on the couch with my mom on a website and like the spin to win comes up and I'm like, hey, that's my friend Ben. Hey, Ben's here. That's great. It's like I'm in the room with you. It is. So how would you describe Privy to to someone who doesn't really know e-commerce or the the online shopping space, or they just hear what about Shopify? Yeah. So if you're familiar with Shopify, I'll piggyback off that, right? Tools like Shopify have made it drastically easier and lower cost to launch your online store, right? But the challenge is that, it, you know, even though it's so easy to launch these things, it's really hard to grow a real business. So Privy gives you tools that live on your site to engage customers and off your site to drive repeat sales so that you can sell more on top of your store, right? We really align with that vision of like, you know, just sell more. I love that. And a great analogy, and correct me if I'm wrong, but if you think of your website as your storefront and you might be on a really busy street getting a lot of blog traffic, but people aren't necessarily coming in the front door. Privy lets you get more people in the door and just constantly remind them that you're you're selling products. Hey, look what we just released. This one's running out of stock. This one's back in stock. We're running a promo. That's how I would describe Privy to uh, to my friends and family. Yeah, yeah. And then like one layer deeper in terms of the tactics, I think it's, you know, uh, you drive traffic to your storefront. That's where all of your business happens for the majority of these stores. And not everyone buys. So Privy is going to give you tools like pop-ups and spin wheels and cross-sell displays and free shipping bars and all that stuff so that you can build relationships, convert that first sale, and then you know through email and text, engage with them once they've left. 
to drive them back to the store. So I really do have to thank you for helping me find my identity because you were the first person to really call me a founder. I'd always thought of myself as an entrepreneur, being entrepreneurial, but never necessarily as a founder before. So how would you identify? Because you you published a book earlier this year. You've been running Privy for several years now, six, seven at least. How would you identify? Uh, you had another uh, baby girl this year, so you're a father as well. And with doing so much, how would you identify yourself? Hmm. I certainly identify myself as a founder. We're now a much bigger company. We're 70 people. And so my, my title CEO. And so that's a whole other kind of segment we can dive into. But for me, founder is someone that moves the ball forward, even if there's no clear path to doing that, right? So you need to be like a roll up your sleeves type of mentality. You need to have your hand in some creative elements of the business, some sales and marketing elements of the business, um, some product development, uh, some technical stuff, even the finance and math side. So, you know, you just kind of like, as the founder, you're bear hugging all these things and trying to take one step forward at a time <laughs> and, then, and then another and then another and then another. And like every few steps you get punched in the face yep. and you kind of take a step back, but you're still like, you need to have that forward momentum and that optimism to push forward. Um, and yeah, like I've known you, I think we met at, at our conference Privy Live last year for the first time. And yeah. I just, I was like, who is this guy, Lucas? He's everywhere, you know, and I just found like, you know, you've got your hand in different things, you're creative, you're technical, and you're a good marketer. And I just thought, wow, like, it's funny to me that Lucas is actually working at a company. He strikes me as, you know, a founder. Oh, sometimes you got to take a, a little bit of a vacation. But uh, as I announced in the trailer of this podcast, I'm uh, I'm back. I, I got my uh, I dusted off my uh, my founder hat, and we'll see if the third time's the uh, the charm for for the big win. And it feels nice to be doing it my way and just really keeping that control because. I mean, you said it, you get punched in the face a lot, whether it's someone just not believing in you. And I'm sure you, you saw this as well, that when you're first starting out, you have friends, family say, oh, that's cute or whatever. Or even, you know, people starting a Shopify site and it's like, well, why didn't you at least just try all my app? I would have appreciated the feedback and it's, it can be daunting at times. Yeah. I actually, you know, it's funny, like aside from my wife, who's incredibly supportive and I would say my mom and dad, like everyone around me, my closest friends. I think when you, when you say you're starting a business or, or working on a, an idea, I think like everyone that you expect to be supportive, I mean, you know, they are, but they're also the ones that are the most skeptical. And I don't know why that is, but I, I see it, you know, every time I talk to a new founder or, you know, even just think back to my own experience, like, it's so freaking hard to start a business and get a product off the ground that I think like people are either naturally skeptical of your ability or your idea or whatever. But I've, what I've found is like, whenever I'm talking to founders, like I've realized, like, I don't care about your idea. Like it could be the stupidest idea in the world, or it could be the most amazing. Like I'm not the one who should be judging that. Um, but what I will kind of lean into is, you know, questioning some assumptions and like, are you targeting a customer that you're so excited about 
that you're, you're going to spend the next five, 10 years of your life solving problems for that customer. And if you're that passionate and excited, like I'm confident that you'll figure out a business. And that's such a good point that it's the dedication to the time. I mean, look at this year, everything changed. If you opened up a bar four years ago and maybe you're just starting to get a customer base and then COVID hits, you need to pivot fast. And you see it now, some of the, at least here in Toronto, now that we're, we're re-locked down and some restaurants are saying, screw the rules and organizing protests and others are saying, you know what, we're going to take our dining room. We bought two new mixers and we're going to start making donuts in the dining room. You can order online. And it's really, how do you adapt and change to keep solving the problems as you get punched in the face repeatedly? Sometimes <laughs> sometimes you get hit with a baseball bat in the face from uh, someone in the back of a pickup truck going 50 miles an hour. And you just got to knock it, knock down and just keep moving forward, like you said. Yeah, we've, we've had a few of those too. It brings me back to another lesson that I actually learned at my first company is only take advice from people who give you money, AKA your customers. Yeah, that's actually a really good point. And, and one I, I like to like coach on is, you know, early on, I started this business almost 10 years ago, right? And like at the time, you know, for tech companies and tech founders, you would just kind of like read TechCrunch and you see you know, the people that are getting publicized are the ones who are, are raising money. And so as a founder, like back then, I, I didn't know any better. I just felt like that was what you need to do to get a business off the ground. But, you know, it took me basically the first three years of no's from investors to realize, man, if I had just spent all of that time and energy talking to customers and making our product better, like this business would be in a very different spot and we might not need the money. No. Yeah, I think that is that's probably the only category of people you should be listening to. And it's almost like the um the 10,000 hours theory and I related a lot to pilots where if you've been in the plane for 10,000 hours, you probably encountered most situations you'll need to run into whether it's an engine stalling or bad weather, you know how to adapt. And once you've spent 10,000 hours talking to your customers and really becoming them and knowing their problems, that's when you go out and raise money, but not before. At least that's how I would do it now. Yeah, agreed. Agreed. I mean, we, we, we ended up raising money before, but I think, you know, candidly, like we weren't that efficient with that capital um, until, you know, I was in the trenches. How many years is 10,000 hours, by the way? It depends. I've done the math and I, I'm i up on my 10,000 hours of Shopify. Like You see me do these 60-second pit stop store reviews and it's just, I've seen every kind of website there is. I just, I'm not seeing anything new for the first time. And let's say I really started e-commerce in 2014. So that's six years, but there were a lot of days where I was grinding out 14 to 16 hour days across just different projects. So I would say eight, nine years. Got it. Yeah. I mean, so as we started to pick up traction inside of Shopify and e-commerce, like I was doing support, right? Not not for eight years, but for the first two years, basically, like I was the front line of support. And I think that was what gave me all the confidence in the world around what we were building, the market we're going after, the opportunity that's like right in front of our nose. And so, you know, 
along the way, like originally before that period when investors were saying no, I was like, oh, that sucks. Like my business sucks. But, you know, after I had that experience and I knew that like we had such strong product market fit, we would still get some no's, believe it or not. But those no's, you know, they were a lot easy to take because like, I actually didn't care. Like I know what's happening in the market and the growth in our platform and what the customers are asking. And so, yeah, I think like just, you know, forget about investors early on. You know, I think that should probably be the case for about 90% of businesses that are getting off the ground. Just talk to your customers. Even taking a step back, just try to sell something first. Can (laughs) you get people to give you money? The amount doesn't matter, but even if it's giving away product for free and then saying a week later, hey, do you want to buy more of that? If you can't get people to give you money early on, you you just don't have a business, unfortunately. Yeah, agreed. Agreed. So changing topics to something a little bit more fun. You're a dad. You had uh, your second daughter this year. And you mentioned on another podcast the impact that your parents being entrepreneurs had on you. And I felt the same way with my parents, but also a lot of sort of parental figures in my life. How do you think your parents' entrepreneurial backgrounds really shaped you as a founder? Yeah. I mean, the dinner table talk early on, like my dad, it was all about risk taking, you know? I mean, he came to this country from the Middle East, right? He was the first one in his family here. Oh, wow. Even on my mom's side, my grandfather was a risk taker. Like he opened up a retail store, a clothing store. And my mom also, you know, she had her own business. My dad had his own business. And, you know, there were some definitely some times where I knew they were stressed and how they're going to pay for the mortgage growing up, you know, occasionally. And, um, but even so, my dad would kind of pull me aside. This was kind of as I got older and he'd talk about like, you know, you got to start your own business. You don't want to kind of be at risk and work for someone else who could lay you off and all that stuff. So there was a lot of like, you know, Normally, this word's used in negative connotation, but I would say like doctrination around the concept of entrepreneurship. And it was like the only thing I I really saw growing up in, in the family around me. And then in college, like I, I really struggled. I, you know, I went to a great school. I was in the engineering program. But, you know, I think a lot of people laugh when they hear this, like I actually barely graduated in four years and graduated with a, I think it was like a 2.7 GPA. Um, so I, I struggled, but the only class that stood out to me that I just loved and attended everyone was entrepreneurship. So <laughs> you're, you're going to laugh because I, I wanted you to ask me the burrito story. My marks were a little bit higher because I, I worked to get them up and I retook a couple, a uh, few courses. The only class that I got an A in was the entrepreneurship class. So before Shark Tank, there's a show called Dragons Den in Canada. Mr. Wonderful and Robert Hershevik actually started here and then went down to the big leagues, we'll, we'll call it. But like the homework assignments were review the pitches here and your entire mark was predicated on building a business plan and then some investors would come in and you would pitch them. And the nice thing about my university was the class sizes were like 20 people. So as you know, I am a burrito aficionado. And at the time there was this restaurant, Burrito Boys in Toronto. It was this little hole in the wall, but I just thought it was the perfect business model. 
because you go in and it's a little dingy and then you open it up and it's so bright and just everything about it was just perfect. You go and you wait in line to place your order. So you have a little bit of time to just look at the options, see what other people are getting. It's not intimidating. You place your order, you see it made right in front of you so you know it's fresh and then you get a number and just the same way that countdowns create urgency, count-ups can provide a lot of social proof. So it's almost like you have that countdown until your burrito. And it's just building that excitement while, while they make it. But you know when you're at a restaurant and the table beside you was seated 10 minutes after you and then they get your food, their food right away? Yeah. There's none of that because the burritos are served in order. It was just the most fair thing. And there was just so many ways you could take it. You could do a, do a Christmas burrito with turkey instead of chicken or and stuffing instead of refried beans, cranberry sauce instead of salsa. There was just no limit to what you could do. Uh, it's also incredibly portable, so you can do it for catering. I just thought it was the perfect business model. So I took that idea and put it into a whole thing to open up Brito Boys in Halifax. And funnily enough, the professor actually uh, messaged me on Facebook saying, last week total coincidence saying it was a great idea uh you definitely could have gotten a lot of traction with it and it was so funny one night we were in halifax nova scotia where it's an adventure to go there because we were about an hour outside of the city and we're walking down the street one day and we just see a burrito restaurant and everyone knew about this master plan of mine and we all just stopped in our tracks was your professor standing outside? <laughs> Wouldn't that be something? Just piggyback off the kids for uh, R&D. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> That's, that place sounds like you're heaven from what I know, Lucas. Oh, absolutely. Like it was just, oh, and um, I don't know if, are you familiar with the brand East Coast Lifestyle? No. So it's pretty popular in Canada. If you think of the Maritimes, so Nova Scotia, New Brunswick, PEI, and Atlantic Canada with Newfoundland. It's hard to get analogy into the States, but imagine if Maine was a section of the U.S. would be the only way I could put it. You don't get the same respect as the rest of the country. So it's really that identity of being from from the East Coast. So it's a pretty popular company uh, here in Canada, an apparel brand. And it was actually started out of the same course, which is pretty cool. So I look at their success and I always wonder what would have happened if I did start my own uh, burrito company from that uh, that class project. Hey, it's never too late. That's true. I still have a lot of life left. Uh, Ray Kroc was, how old was he when he, how can we put it eloquently, borrowed the idea for McDonald's. <laughs> that was a great um, link that you sent me, by the way, to that scene. I love that. Oh, uh, it's. I think the reason that it's that movie isn't rated higher is it's really only for founders. Yeah. You know, I actually haven't watched the full movie. I just watched the scene that you sent me when he first has his first McDonald's. That's how I felt going into Brutal Boys for the first time. It's just, you see something and you just think, why aren't more people doing this? Yeah, it's interesting. But like, I mean, I should watch it, but I didn't even realize that like the person who took McDonald's to that next level wasn't the original founding brothers, you know, which is very different, you know, than the experience that I'm having here and, and that we normally hear about. But what I will say is every now and then I look at some other kind of apps in the Shopify ecosystem and I have that same reaction. I'm like, oh my gosh, like imagine what we could do if we, we bought these, these people. We see it all the time and we've chatted a little bit about it. And one thing I think that's not really being utilized enough is brands as influencers. Because think about, you have the data of just how powerful email marketing is because you're sending 
messaging to take action, buy a product, however you want to phrase it, to people who already know you and have trusted you to give you their credit card. So if you say, hey, go give my friends a sale, the conversion rate will just be so much higher. And why not partner with other brands who maybe you can grow each other's Instagram accounts or, well, now TikToks, but also just marketing to each other's lists as a way to keep in contact, but also drive some sort of revenue to a new audience. That's kind of like the media company stuff. You know, like I think, so this year we, we wrote a book um, and we launched a, a podcast. I get both, but you're right. No one's really paying us. We're doing that for ourselves. Yeah, no, that's, a, that's an interesting concept. And I mean, we were even talking about it before recording where instead of going out to a bunch of different e-commerce influencer podcasts, if I'm an e-commerce app, I will probably get more traction going on your podcast because it's people who are familiar with Shopify apps. Totally. Yeah. We've had, you know, some guests from, from other companies like uh, good old Stu from Junip and uh, he told me they got a ton of downloads after coming on the show, oh, awesome. which is great. Love that. Yeah. And even when I did the uh the episodes, I had more feedback from that than my own stuff. <laughs> That's amazing. That's so cool. And I wasn't even intending it to be like a marketing thing. I just knew that you were having a baby. So I thought maybe if I can record a few bank shows for Ben, then he's not there in the uh, uh in the hospital during COVID watching your wife give birth, thinking, Oh fuck, I've got oh man, I've got I've got to do a podcast. Oh, what am I doing? Like that's great. It's a little bit of backup if you need it. That was amazing. I'm glad it kind of boosted your profile. It's great. So one last thing that I really wanted to hit on, and you alluded to it earlier, is when do you think you make that transition from founder to CEO? I mean, I think the interesting thing about a founder's job is that it's changing every few months anyways. Like that's very clear. If I look back and you know, someday down the road, I'll write a book or do a, a podcast about my experience. But every few months, it was changing, you know, originally, it was like, recruiting, you know, talking to customers, customer support, right? Then it was a little bit of fundraising and in sales, right? And training, I, you know, I don't know, it always was changing. But last year, like in 2020, I guess this year, we hit a point where I brought in really strong department heads for each of the functions. You know, so we we brought in VP engineering, VP product, VP sales, CMO, VP customer success, uh, VP people, right? So literally in every function across the business, there was someone really strong. And so what I found was like, I, I transitioned this year from a doer where I, I was like literally doing things, right? I was on customer calls. I was helping with support. I was, you know, working with product managers and engineers to a spot where I don't do anything anymore. And what I need to do is provide clarity and coaching to my department head so they're empowered to do stuff. I brought them in for a reason. And so that that was interesting because it really completed that transition for me from roll up your sleeves founder to CEO. And actually, it's been really interesting and like, not the easiest transition for me, candidly, because I love to do stuff. But I, I've really grown to appreciate and love this side of it too now, where 
I need to work closely and make sure that the the vision and you know budgets and you know each of these department heads is empowered. But it was definitely a new muscle for me this year. It reminds me of, especially in the early days and in this industry around the holidays, it's busy time. You can't really not check your phone during American Thanksgiving or over the uh, the holidays. And I've, I've been at Christmas dinners, just checking the Shopify app, Amazon app on my phone, like discreetly under the table and, and just kind of getting kicked for it. But it's a busy time of year and it's hard to really be comfortable unplugging. I can only imagine that that's a much more accentuated feeling of that. Or if you switch jobs and you no longer have to travel all the time, like you, you saw, I was on the road in Q1 for, I think it was 17 flights in Q1 and then obviously none since then. And it just, it's like, what do you do with my time? It's like feeling naked almost. Yeah. But I mean, I think, I think part of that, what's been cool is like, it's helped me focus my energy in different areas, right? So, you know, coaching internally, right? That's probably my most important job. But then all the external stuff, like I stepped into the podcast. And that's something I never could have done ever, ever before, right? As in that founder, like scrappy roll up the sleeves. But now, you know, we just crossed 150,000 downloads. And it's kind of fueling our education ladder, we call it, where people come to learn and then, you know, join the community and then find, find the software. So it's, it's been, you know, I think the next like arc or horizon for us, you know, it never would have happened if I was still like in the weeds of the business. Again, every few months over the last eight years or so, my job has changed. And I think, you know, now I would say it's, it's graduated completely from founder to CEO. If you were to do it again, who would your first real department head hire be? And, and you're not allowed to say finance, Bob, because that, that should just be from the get-go, hiring a, a good person to take care of your finances. Do you want to know something funny? I do. Our finance guy, his name is Bob. I know, because last time we were chatting, you said, oh, it's finance Bob. Oh, okay. I thought you were just like using that as a generalization. No, no, that's that's specific to you. So who would you hire? Let's say maybe you're starting an e-commerce business or your own Shopify app. You've written some of the code, you're in the app store, but it's, you have the traction. Maybe you have raised a little bit of money and it's time to, to play some chips. Who, who would you hire? That's a really good question. I mean, I mean, all I know is software, right? I, I don't know uh, the e-commerce side yet, but what I would say is I would do all the jobs in the beginning. And then I would just say to myself, okay, what are my strengths and where am I spending most of my time that doesn't line up to my strength? And then I would uh, go higher for that to, to counterbalance. So, you know, certainly like in SaaS, software as a service where I live today and I'm a founder, um, that's on the, the engineering side. And, and we had an amazing tech lead and, and solid team early on. It was just me and them building out while I was doing support. But if I were in e-commerce, uh, I would probably be on the, the operations and fulfillment side and I would lean into the audience development and marketing side. Yeah. Thinking about the question as I asked it, I think on the e-commerce side or as I'm doing with media, I think obviously working with um, ML Dutch, the producer is important. And I think a very good writer as well, just that can articulate what you're doing. Yeah. 
you make such a good point too of sort of one of my ethos is just do every job averagely so that when you are hiring, you know what someone of a high caliber talent looks like versus just replacing you to do an average job. And it just early on, it, it sets the tone for just so much. Yeah. I mean, we, the first three years of Privy were not a success at all. Like it was a disaster. I mean, we had revenue, but it was flat for years. And I think part of that I attribute to me not doing the jobs first and me just hiring based off of, you know, resumes and, and whatever companies that looked good on paper, right? They call that like the PR hires. And, you know, if I look at the period where we really started growing quickly and we really hired well early on, that that was only after I had done the job myself in a mediocre way. Because like you said, you know exactly what you're looking for. You can document the process. And ideally, the person who's going to come in and do it better than you can look at what you're doing and say, oh, wow, that's pretty good that you've done that. But like, here's how I'm going to 10x it. (laughs) It's a good start. Now, let's just go back to the kids table and I'm going to show you how the grownups do it. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) No, that was that was what happened. You know, Jess, who came in and, and took over support, she's our director of customer support. I mean, she just totally schooled everything um, about how we were doing it before. Erica, who, who now runs our entire customer org, was exactly the same. She was taking care of customers, coaching them better than I ever could. You know, certainly Dave and, and his team on the marketing side. And now, you know, we have that pretty much in every department. It's been amazing to watch. Yeah. And I mean, I see it in in reading um, the e-commerce marketing handbook, like I've been around the block, but it's just everything in it. It's just very well articulated and very well written where even if you've done it a million times, it's nice to be able to just go back and refresh yourself in something that just doesn't feel like a piece of marketing collateral that was written by the cheapest writer you could find. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, Dan really owned the book, Dan Murphy on my team. He's, he's amazing too. And, and Lauren, like, you know, they're great writers. And actually, one of the cool things about our job is our job is to teach. I mean, we provide a marketing platform, right? But a big part of our our mission is not just tools, but the education to grow as well. And, you know, the cool part about bringing Dan and Lauren and and all these people in um, on Dave's team and the marketing side is that they don't come from e-commerce, right? So they need to learn it. And then they need to teach it in a way that kind of like you were saying earlier, like my mom could explain it, you know, I mean, digest it. Right. And Mm -hmm. my mom's actually, you know, pretty advanced at this stuff, but that's the right analogy. And and I think the book does a great job of that. Like it's, yeah, it's super basic if you run a hundred million dollar company, but uh, our audience, I think a lot of people forget this is, you know, is really between zero and a million in sales. But even if you are running a hundred million dollar company, you might be bringing someone on to launch a new product line to get it from zero to a million that maybe doesn't come from the e-commerce background that won't realize you need photos with a white background and lifestyle photos showing the product in as many different use cases as possible to start busting objections before you even considered the purchase. Yeah. So so don't sell yourself too, too short on, uh, on the hundred million dollar plus stores. No, I mean, we do have some of those, like our, our core product, you know, it's scaled, it's scaled up. We do have that. Oh, absolutely. And I think it's so funny when I see in the groups when people saying, oh, can I just use uh, the competitor? And like, 
capturing and converting your initial website visitors is the most important thing. It's significantly easier to increase the number of emails in your pipeline than to increase your conversion rate. Oh, totally. If you're at 2.8% conversion rate, like it's good enough. Don't try to stretch it to three. You can only get so much yield out of, uh, out of those oranges. Totally. Yeah. I mean, you know, you don't need to pitch it to me. Um, I think a lot of people just kind of move to save money or whatever the reason is to, um, you know, use native forms on a different platform. And I think, you know, there is always uh, a cost to using free. And I think in this case, if your focus is email list growth and building an audience, free tools there are a great place to start, but you need to take the same approach you do around list growth and site conversion that you would to email segmentation and automation. Otherwise, you just have a huge gap in your funnel. But I would disagree. I would say it's more important to spend the money on the capture part versus the sending part. Capture the emails and spend the money there and then use free MailChimp or do mail merges. The email conversion rate will will be the same whether those tools are on a free plan or premium versus the quality of the emails that you're capturing and the total volume. Totally. I mean, look, like there were a lot of brands that are like, you know, like, wait, our, our Black Friday wasn't as big as we thought. And I'm like, well, that's because you weren't focusing on list growth all year long. Yeah. Totally agree with you. Let's say you have 5,000 emails, but 3,500 of them have purchased within the last three months. How many are really ready to purchase again? Exactly. Exactly. I could go for hours on that. We'll have to come oh. back. To <laughs> I think we could do. And just one last thought before we, we take it home is it's like in retail it's just easier to get into more stores than to increase the sales in one store yes that is very true like a rule of thumb for retail is about ten dollars per SKU per week in the store so if you're selling at that rate you can't increase it to thirty dollars per SKU yeah it's just not like just getting into more stores that's a great analogy i like that a lot If you enjoyed this episode of Rolled Up and you want to hear more of Ben's voice, he hosts a daily podcast called The E-Commerce Marketing School. It'll teach you everything you need to go from zero to a million dollars of revenue. And if you want to learn more about the business of burritos, I highly recommend checking out Steve Els, the founder of Chipotle's episode of How I Built This with Guy Raz. I'm not the biggest fan of Chipotle, but I respect the business. Next week, we take the commerce content a step further and look into the crystal ball of what the future might look like. You might have heard that Shopify is now working with Facebook and Instagram, but what does that mean? It's called Headless Commerce, and one of the companies that's leading it is called Shogun. Their co-founder and COO, Nick, joins me where we talk about Headless Commerce, what it is, how to do it. It's not easy. It's incredibly technical. And what went into building their new product, Shogun Frontend? I'm also sharing something pretty cool in the episode that might not mean much to you. But until then, it's five o'clock, so that means it's quitting time. I'm going to grab a burrito and I'll see you next week. With 70,000 customers around the world and hundreds of five-star reviews... It's no wonder why so many businesses choose OmniSend for their marketing automation. Here's a review from the Shopify app store that I think said it better than I could of myself. 
honestly, I don't think there's anything this app can't do when it comes to email automation marketing. I haven't been with them long, but it seems like whenever I try to do something a little bit more complex, OmniSend has the capability to do it. Their support is incredible. Thanks, Kara. I'm so happy that I chose this app over all the others. You won't be disappointed. Head to OmniSend.com and see for yourself why so many brands love OmniSend. Delivering Amazon-like speed to customers. That's what TB12 wanted when they went with ShipBob, and that's what they got. In addition to 25% cost savings since switching 3PLs to ShipBob, if the GOAT Tom Brady trusts ShipBob with his company, you should too head to ShipBob.com, get a quote, see how much you could be saving while also growing your business.